Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Ben Dunson. He is editor-in-chief of American Reformer, a new online project. He's the author of Individual and Community in Paul's Letter to the Romans, and he's also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. Welcome, Pastor Dunson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, our topic is the first item I mentioned, American Reformer. What is it? Well, it's uh, a new online journal of Christian social commentary. Um, in particular, we are, well, we're trying to do a lot of things, but one of them is to, you could say, reintroduce evangelical Christians to uh, the riches of Protestant social thought and political thought from the past. Um, and uh, we, we sense that there is, as a lot of people do, a, a moment of crisis in America um, that's accelerating a kind of a, a cultural crisis, um, and it's really it's really creeping into the church in some shocking ways. Um, I think that there are certain things that are being said even in uh, very uh, evangelical denominations that would have been unthinkable just two or three years ago. Hmm. Um, in, in my own denomination, uh, there's been um, a, um, a back and forth. There's um, some pastors who've written a book uh, arguing that, uh, that Christianity demands essentially uh, reparations for slavery. Mm -hmm. And... Um, another pastor in our denomination responded to that that uh, book, and he wrote a review of it. And then the the authors of that book they responded, and they they said, "Well, you know, we, we're not accusing this pastor of being a racist or a white supremacist, but even though he doesn't realize it, he performs the most basic impulses of white supremacy, um, and that um, essentially the way he does theology is." just embodying white supremacy, and his whole tradition is driven by white supremacy. That would have been, I just, I mean, that no one would have accepted someone in our denominations speaking in that way, I think even two or three years ago. And now it is almost just um, accepted, like this is just something we can say, and we can move forward like this. And so there's that, that uh, sense that these pressures are really, um, really creeping into the church, and we want to respond to that in a bold way that takes people back to a time in which Protestants actually really thought seriously about these things. You know, I want to come back to, uh, as you put it, you know, the last two or three years and what might be the causes of this emergence. Uh, but maybe, maybe I'm in a, in a longer picture. You have said that there is an unfortunate 
assumption among leaders of evangelical churches, maybe going back a few decades or longer, that Christian institutions really should stay away from politics. Well, what is the assumption there? Yeah, so the, the assumption is that politics will necessarily corrupt the, the church's witness in the world or that it will, it will corrupt the, the Christian's witness in the world um, that you're, you're essentially you're gonna you're just gonna get your hands dirty, and I think for a lot of people they think you just have to stay out of it. Um, you have to have a, a, a sense of neutrality. I think it's just the the air that we breathe of you know a history of classical political liberalism. I think a lot of evangelical Christians don't realize how much they're shaped by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they don't realize as well that um, there was a time you know, before the rise of classical liberalism where, where Protestants did actually think differently on this. And, um, and so I, I think that's part of it is they just it's the air we breathe. And um, I mean, there, there, obviously, there are ways in which if you get involved in politics, you can get your hands dirty and, 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 and um, they see that. And so there's this sense of apathy or the sense of just aversion to, to politics. How would they respond if you said, listen, <laughs> you may be averse to politics. You may not get your hands dirty, but it is very clear from recent times that politics wants to get into your lives. Politics wants to get into your churches. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's inescapable. You know, there's the there's the uh, the issue of culture war. I find this is a, a particularly um, important one where those on the left have they framed the issue in such a way, and a lot of people have seen this, but um, that it's only those on the right who are fighting the culture war, and they they essentially portray themselves as just being the the neutral default position of good human beings mm-hmm. on the left. And, and so it's a, it's a very strong pressure for, for those who are conservative in their theology and, and their politics to feel, oh, that's right, we have to pull back from this because fighting the culture war, that's a bad thing. That's, you know, ignorant fundamentalists, that's what they do. And we have to pull back from that. And so the, the whole framing of the narrative from the outset teaches a lot of evangelical Christians to just pull back from this. And, and so what happens is, those on the left, they're fighting the culture war, too. They just make it seem like theirs is the neutral default position, and then they win the culture war, and we just say, well, we can't even fight it, and so, of course, we're going to lose. Um, and so I think that's one, that's one way you see that. Uh, you refer to an older tradition of Protestants do being, uh, well, a, a tradition of social thought. Generally speaking, what was Protestantism's sense of the role of the state in people's lives. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great question because um, you know we, we we think in terms of separation of church and state uh, today as being this absolute distinction. And if you go back a few centuries, what you'll see is that for Protestants, I mean, they certainly believe it's important to distinguish the the church and the state. And so you'll see a lot of, uh, of people um, uh, who will they'll, they'll argue the church should not attempt to uh, dictate to the to the state how it should run its affairs. The state should not interfere in uh, matters of 
uh, church, um, as far as church governance and things. But they're very clear that both the church and the state are appointed by God, and the state has a very important role to play in the furtherance of righteousness in the world. And, and so if you, if you go to a text like Romans 13, that's a very important text for Protestant political theology that the, the state is appointed by God to promote what is good and to suppress evil. And I think that's, that's one of those areas where many evangelical Christians actually, interestingly, read Romans 13 almost um, the, the opposite way, where they, they think the only thing that's being said there is that you must obey the government in, in every possible way. Uh, uh, whereas if you, if you look at um, older Protestant thought, they're saying, no, this, this shows you that the state is subordinate to God. It has a, an important role to play in doing good in the world and preventing evil. And that's going to that's gonna require a, an activist uh, position on the part of the government that might not fit so smoothly with someone who has defined their politics according to John Stuart Mill or someone like that. And your problem is not that you firmly believe in, in that activist Protestantism in, in politics, but that the debate is over, that there has uh, really set in a passive uh, attitude, the, the willingness to appear neutral, nonpartisan neutral. That's the problem, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So why do you think current evangelical leaders back away? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think the main reason is pretty subtle, and that's why it's so hard to see. But, um, I mean, it's, it's not just that evangelicals are prone to this. We all are. Um, we want to be respected in the world. Um, we want to have prestige and honor, and it's just not possible to hold firmly to the convictions of Scripture and classic Christian theology and to be respected in American public life the way it perhaps once was. I'm reading uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses S. Grant right now, and while he was a sitting president, um, he spoke about um, how important the Bible was in, in public life. And he said that, that, that the Bible, uh, we're indebted to the Bible for all of the progress that's been made in true civilization throughout history. Hmm. Um, imagine, you know, imagine a sitting president um, saying something like that um, today, you know, and that was just, that was accepted at that point in time, but it's not anymore. And so there's this, this subtle temptation to pull back from anything that's going to lose you prestige in the world and, um, and, and you, you're going to think it's going to lose you influence. And so you just have to tone it down or, you know, maybe you have these convictions, but you, you don't express them in public because you know what's going to happen. And, and you just, you, you, can't, um, you can't have a solid witness to the world if you are so obsessed with what people think about you. I th I, so I think that really is driving a lot of this. I mean, uh, leaders of educational institutions are afraid of losing their accreditation status. They're afraid of losing their ability to have government loans and things like this. Uh, there are, it's, it's, the fact of the matter is that 
they want professors teaching in their colleges and seminaries who've gone to Harvard, who've gone to Oxford, who've gone to Cambridge and Yale. Uh, that makes them look good. And, um, and, but there's a, there's a very important trade-off there. You, you, you have to conform to what those institutions want. Pastor Dunson, when yes. these leaders look around and see the social disintegration going on in the United States, I mean, single parentage just keeps going up. It, it, you think it can't go up any further. It keeps going up. The, the public schools uh, keep going down. Uh, and church attendance isn't looking very good, especially among the young. How then do they respond to the disintegration that they witness every day. Right. Um, how, how do the leaders respond to this? I mean, what, what, how can they maintain a, a passive, apolitical, putatively right. apolitical attitude when they see the social disintegration, which often has a political component? to it, mm-hmm. that, that, that laws and many leaders, uh, secularist leaders, are pushing policies that promote these forms of disintegration. Yeah, do they just I, I ignore it? They, they, they just, well, we're not yeah. going to get in there. We're not going to do that battle. They ignore it. They, they selectively ignore it, I, I think. Um, and here the whole prestige thing comes in. Because you've got a lot of uh, people who would be uh, very activist in, say, for instance, um, advocating that the, the state should be paying reparations for slavery. So when, yeah. when the issue happens to be one that will gain you status in our culture, uh, they can be very activist. But on those things that um, they know are going to... Um, make them look bad, then they pull back from those and they, they shrink away from those. So, I, I mean, they see the disintegration and it's just not possible for the church to do everything. And I would say, and this is kind of a classically Protestant position, that it's not even the role of the church to do all of those things. That's why God has appointed the state is to 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 deal with those issues. And um, and yeah, so I think they, they, they pull back selectively um, I, I don't know all the reasons why, but um, it, I'd certainly I think it's harmful. Uh, are they a little timid uh, to take on a lot of those maybe difficult social issues because of the memory of the 1980s culture wars and the moral majority, Jerry Falwell? Is that memory alive at all? Oh, certainly, yeah. Um, the, the one thing that will terrify, you know, any sophisticated evangelical is to be considered a fundamentalist um, like that. So that, that's definitely in the background. Are the people in the pews getting a little frustrated by the apolitical attitude? Or again, the selectively political attitude? I, I think so, for sure. I, I'm, I'm seeing this a lot, is that um, there's, there's a lot of people in evangelical churches who they want their leaders to speak boldly and uh, even you know, put themselves out on the line and speak courageously about any number of issues that our society is facing. And they'll see people speaking boldly about certain things, but some of the most pressing issues, uh, they feel like there's just crickets chirping. 
and um, and, and that's very troubling for them. And I think um, I think you're seeing almost a, a kind of groundswell at the grassroots and a sort of disconnect uh, among some of the the leadership of these churches and these institutions. So how does American Reformer, your project, enter into this controversy? Right. Well, we we desire to speak boldly to these things that these issues that um, we're we're seeing timidity on, um, not just to speak boldly, but also to to help people with a kind of alternative framing uh, to these issues. I think that's really vital. What I'm seeing is that a lot of a lot of just average Christians feel really confused right now. Um, I think they they instinctively know a lot of things that are true, but there is so much being thrown at them, and so much of it is just is is intentionally confusing, and I think uh, disorienting. And so they 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 know what's right, but they don't necessarily know how to best express it and and how to to deal with all of these things that they're they're reading online and so on and we want to we want to help give them the words uh, to do that to help break through the confusion um, we we want to help them see that the way things are framed often just puts them on the back foot um, I mentioned culture war that's one of the things um, sort of wokeness um, you know there's been a lot of people that have been addressing wokeness as a kind of pseudo religion, you know, really militant uh, religion that has no grace. I think of Joshua Mitchell and, and yeah. American Awakening and um, and other people, and they've done some really good work on that. Um, I think just helping people see it from a different perspective, an alternative framing where you, you realize that you know, wokeness really is a kind of pseudo religion, and it's it's killing people. There, there's no grace, and there's it's never ending demand for um, retribution. Um, once you you can help people see that, um, then I think um, they they're very appreciative of that, and they're just they're struggling to find one place where they can go and they can have a consistently um, helpful and sound perspective that will they'll help them see that. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. I think what you said a moment ago about sort of starting out on the defensive, not realizing the terms of the debate, if you accept their accusations at face value, and, and that your first impulse is to say, no, for, for instance, just say, no, I'm not racist. Yeah. You've already lost. You're done. <laughs> you, you are. Oh. I mean, it's time to speak proudly and forcefully for your institution. Now, your chairman, uh, Nate Fisher, speaks of the need to defend Western civilization, to speak of Western civilization as uh, out of, out of pride, out of a noble, great inheritance. Is the defense of Western civilization a big part of the mission of American Reformer? 
Right, yeah, because we, we see, I mean, obviously, and maybe I'm even doing the very thing that we're talking about when I say that it's not perfect, um, but it has been shaped in very profound ways by Christian truth, and we want to help people see that and see that there is so much good in that, um, and that, it, yeah, exactly, it's not something um, uh, to just shrink back from and be ashamed of, um, uh, see what's good, celebrate that. Um, you don't allow people to put you always on the back foot and, and race, like you mentioned, that's a really uh, a great example to where we should be going on the offensive. Um, Absolutely. A lot, of the, a lot of the woke stuff, I mean, it is just simply itself racist um, and, and we shouldn't be afraid. I mean, the one word that causes everyone to shake in their boots is, is racist. Uh, you bigot, you racist. Uh, they also, I imagine, well, I imagine part of your mission is to speak for the same thing about the history of Christianity, the institutions that you stand for. I mean, it, it is, to me, a bizarre situation when you have presidents of colleges, for instance, apologizing for the racism of their own institutions, that, that you have leaders in the military in the army apologizing the guilt that these leaders are expressing or leaders in i mean do you find leaders in the catholic church spending more time apologizing and and uh, uh engaging in 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 guilt confessions than they are saying what are you talking about this is no. the sermon we we stand for the sermon on the mount we we stand for you know the the great awakening. This this is this I imagine is part of the frustration that people in the pews feel. You're the leader here. Why are you bringing down your own institution? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, uh, Joshua Mitchell's um, turning uh, the the virtue signaling thing to um, innocent signaling. His phrase. I think um, I think that explains a lot of that. Uh, they think, I, I, ironically, I think they they think that signaling their innocence in that way will actually allow them to hold on to their positions of influence and power. Um, they they think it'll essentially pass them over. Um, you know, the the storm will pass them over as long as they signal their innocence. And um, so, in some ways, I mean, it really is destructive of the the institutions that they lead. And I don't think they see how destructive it is, but they think that this is going to allow them to maintain a position of influence and a position of power. And, um, and, and in fact, what they're doing is just simply undermining the mission of their institutions. Yeah. Mr. Fisher actually says that the people assailing the church for its history of exploitation or racism or whatever, uh, that <clears throat> these are not people who want to have, well, we'll put it in the, the terms of a more honest recognition, acknowledgement of the history. The, the open and, again, sincere uh, confession of the bad sides of things. And that when we get that more balanced perspective on the past, that we can move on in a positive way. He actually says, no, no, this is, this is a very sanguine understanding of what the assailants of the church 
the churches are doing. They are actually, he uses the word destroy. They're actually out to destroy the inheritance of, of Western civilization. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, it's, it's a power play. Um, if you always put people in a position where they are, they're guilty and they're guilty of something that they can never make atonement for, there can never be true forgiveness in this system. And so you, you can never even move on. I mean, there's plenty um, in, 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 in American history that was wrong. Um, but in this way of thinking, you can't, you can't ever, uh, you can't, people who did wrong can't ever make reparations for what they, they as individuals actually did and, and find forgiveness and move on. It's, uh, I think it's a power play. It's an attempt to keep your opponents perpetually in a position of uh, subordination um, to where um, they, they just, they simply, they've lost before they've even started. And so, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. You know, I've seen this on, on college campuses in academia for, for years happen when you, you've got some pretty strong fired up leftists who uh, maybe in a, in a, in a quite a minority uh, but they are able to cow and intimidate the the liberal professors who make up pretty much the rest of of a department, and those liberal professors understand, in some in some deep way, they have to be conciliatory. They they have to concede to a lot of the leftist allegations. We've been sexist, racist, all, all, all homophobic, and and all the rest. Uh, but there is no relief because the, the situation of being in the position of an accuser is one that the assailants don't want to give up. It, it's, too, it's too effective. It's too powerful. It's intoxicating to be in that accusatory position. You're the judge. You're the jury. You're the prosecutor. That's, uh, that can be uh, an exhilarating experience. And so I I don't know, I can't think of any examples where that situation has ended in more comedy. I don't don't know of any cases where everyone is happy the following week (laughs) when the concession takes place. Do you? No, and I'm with you. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to annihilate uh, those that you that you've put into that position. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. You know, M- Mr. Fisher says uh, elsewhere that quote evangelical elites they are out to please quote secular credentialers. Is there a a bit of an inferiority complex among evangelicals when they, as you put it earlier? When, when they come up against people who have degrees from Ivy League institutions, or they're from distinguished uh, organizations, that they, they feel a little insecure? Yeah, I, I think there is for sure. That, that's really defined neo-evangelicalism you know, from the 20th century, even, even early on. There, there was a period where probably in the, the 30s, the 40s, 50s, where evangelicals started going to the Ivy League schools and, and, and getting those degrees. 
I mean, there's a fascinating uh, book on uh, a New Testament professor, George Eldon Ladd, um, and he was one of the, the ones who did this. He went to Harvard, and, and he was desperate he was desperate to have that credential and that status. And he wrote what he thought was his definitive book on uh, the kingdom of God. And it was savaged by one reviewer. And interestingly enough, this was a reviewer who had, had grown up as an evangelical and had totally abandoned it. And it, it's, it, was, it was a bad review. But this completely undid Ladd and, and destroyed him. And the rest of his life, he was a, a bitter, angry man, um, and just he, he was finished because of them. I mean, he still produced things, but he he was he was so devastated by this. And I, I think that's just one example of what what it has been a trend um, to to desire that status um, that those institutions can confer. Do you think it's possible to? improve to strengthen these evangelical leaders or must they be replaced well i hope it is i i hope that they're listening to their grassroots um, and and seeing that they they expect them to be courageous for the truth and they want them to so i hope they're listening because i think that's what they should be doing and so i, I hope that they'll they'll find the courage to to stand firm Many of them don't appear to to be um, able to do that, and so yeah, I mean they they they're going to need to be replaced if they can't stand firm uh, for the truth. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm a, a pessimist by nature, so I'm not sure <laughs> yeah. that they will. Yeah. Well, but back to what we were talking about the, at the beginning. In the last couple of years, uh, what would you identify as some of the powerful causes of, of this new increased timidity? Some, some of the causes of the timidity? Yeah. Was it, was it the last summer, the George Floyd explosions on, in, in so many cities? Was right. it just the numbers of, of, the numbers of corporations and, and universities and everything that, that so got on board with the whole systemic racism uh, stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all of that. Uh, George Floyd did seem to be um, a, a tipping point um, where I, I see after, after Floyd, all of a sudden the, the discourse in evangelical churches it seemed to change almost overnight. Now, obviously, there were probably currents flowing under the surface that allowed that to happen, but it, it, it was pretty shocking to me how what I thought were just straightforwardly conservative evangelical leaders and, and pastors w who would have never considered using the, the, the categories of whiteness and white supremacy and, and and all of that to describe just everyday Christians. Um, all of a sudden it was just common and um, within a year it seemed to have gotten to the point where not only was it common, but if you even push back on that, it's just proof. It's just proof that you are a white supremacist. You might not know it. If they're nice, they'll say, well, you, you don't realize that. We, we, we don't think you mean to be a racist, but um, but you can't help it. Uh, how would p 
people get information about American Reformer? Right. So our, our website is AmericanReformer.org, and uh, we are about to launch. Um, you, can, you can go there and you can see um, a video where we've introduced the site, and um, we've got some, some uh, writings up where we introduce what we're going to be about. So that would be, that would be the main way to do it. Okay. AmericanReformer.org. Uh, Pastor Dunson, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.